Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. If you've been listening to the podcast this last week, you know that I was in Park City, Utah for the Sundance Film Festival and that I was very excited about the films in this year's New Frontier program. New Frontier is Sundance's section for boundary pushing and experimental work. It was actually announced last year that the section would be canceled in 2023, but it ended up returning with three features by some amazing filmmakers: Deborah Stratman, Mary Helena Clark, and Mike Gibisser and Fox Maxey. Stratman presented a new film called Last Things that explores the history of our universe through the point of view of rocks. She combines stunning images of rocks with interviews with a geoscientist and excerpts from various sci-fi texts read by the filmmaker Valerie Masadian to craft a narrative of the universe's past and future that decenters humans. It asks us to think beyond ourselves. Mary Helena Clark and Mike Gibisser's film A Common Sequence explores how ideas of the commons uh, of common resources have changed in today's capitalistic tech-driven world. They use three case studies. The first focuses on efforts to conserve and study the Achoque salamander in Mexico, which is known for its regenerative properties. The second on the use of AI in apple picking and harvesting. And the third on the ways in which genetics has become a new prime field for data mining. Both films are as analytical as they're engrossing, they're as thought-provoking as they're visually captivating, and both have something to say about what it means to be human in a world that remains beyond our understanding, but which we continue to exploit and even destroy. So on my last day in Park City, I managed to get Deborah, Mary Helena and Mike together for a conversation about the ideas behind their films, how they approach questions of time and perspective, and what it felt like to be an experimental filmmaker at Sundance. As it turned out, Mary Helena and Mike were actually students of Deborah's once upon a time. So they all had a lot to say about each other's films. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Deborah, Mary, Mike, it is such an honor to have all of you together in a room and be interviewing you in Park City, Utah. Uh we were also supposed to have Fox Maxey, the director of Gush here, but she couldn't make it. So unfortunately, this is not a complete new frontier feature film tw- Sundance 2023 round table, but almost there. Uh and I wanted to just start by asking how has your Sundance been? I know Deborah you're also on the jury in addition to having your film Last Things here and I I imagine it's interesting to be an experimental filmmaker at Sundance and I want to know about that. <laughs> you're looking at me. Hi this is Deborah. <laughs> Devika thank you for having us. To be an experimental or let's just say do you guys like using another word than experimental or do you like experimental? I'm open. Okay. Yeah, I, I struggle with it. I just want to say my film sure. is here. My film is like maybe non-traditional in its story form. And it's always been strange all the times I've showed here. And we were sort of speaking about this with another um conversation we were in the middle of just for me it's positive and negative great in that you'll get people showing up to your film who had no intention of go of you know, I don't think if they had tried to go to find a sort of non-conventional film they would have 
Or they wouldn't have tried. That's what I'm trying to say. They, they might not have sought it out. But here they'll just end up because they have a slate of tickets and it's convenient to be all at one theater. So you get people in the room who are honestly will say, I thought I hated you know, avant-garde film, but I actually kind of like that. Or I, I would have never normal sat that out. So that part's good, I think, you know, if they stay with it. And then the hard part, I think, is just that sometimes you're swept, you're kind of like the flotsam at the edges of the fest because yeah. there's so much energy generated around the narrative uh, and doc, but mostly the narrative fictions because this is the, you know, the premier place to to show that stuff. Right. So that I always secretly wish that just everything was levelized and all the films were in competition, period. And it wasn't categories, but but it would give people an opportunity to kind of see, you know, I don't know, I, whatever. What's what's one of the big narratives that's playing here? Um, bad behavior. Yeah. <laughs> bad behavior <laughs> next to a common sequence, oh, next yeah. to gush, or just that they would all be considered just cinema, right. rolled together and all in competition. And fine, if it's still mm. the narratives that win, but I felt like... I have no love. caveats. I would know? love that, yeah. 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 Marion Mike. You, this is your first Sundance. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it, so it's it, there's nothing really to compare it to um, besides like you know things I've heard from other filmmakers and who have like snuck in the door or like what you said, Kevin Drum Everson said I I I haven't showed it in Sundance. I've shown in New Frontiers, you know. And um, I mean, yeah, I find it really exciting that there's new people finding this kind of work, and I think that we had some of our most engaged audience questions in Salt Lake City, you know? And I was sort of like white-knuckled in the movie theater waiting for lots of white <laughs> walkouts, um, but um, people hung with it, you know? hung And like, we're like, whoa, at minute three of that seven-minute take, that dog did that all, you know? I'm like, yes! <laughs> like, I really appreciated that form of attention. And I also think that maybe some of the noise here um, served a great purpose of being clarifying to me of mm. what I do want out of filmmaking, filmmaking community, and maybe the scale of work that mm. I want to that I want to make and the production level I want to work at. So you're gunning for a Marvel film next. Mm -hmm. You got yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add, Mike? Not really. I mean, it's been yeah a kind of overwhelming experience just sort of trying to understand the layout of the place and get to the different theaters and, and everything like that i mean we definitely have people in the audience who did hate the film <laughs> um but then like mary helena said people who were just like asked the most engaged questions and you know talking about language or you know really digging into the themes of the film so it's been yeah i mean it's uh, yeah i also have it's my first time here so i ha don't have anything to compare it to so yeah i don't know it's been wild accurate audience sampling that these people are like what the hell and these other people are like really are with it and yeah. maybe um the, it's like less of a self-selected crowd than mm. a currents or a wavelengths mm. uh if i may ask a kind of question a behind the scenes question like how do filmmakers like yourself decide where to premiere i know there's it's um it's not always a choice for all filmmakers but is there some kind of calculus i mean are you thinking about the time of the year the kind of audience like you know, if you get invites from Berlinale and Sundance or like a later festival, is there some kind of strategy there? <laughs> Looking at me again, I, I'll, I've, I've said this recently, but I, for me, it's the strategy is about when in the calendar year did I finish? Or do I anticipate finishing and then looking ahead to the next six months or so just to see what's coming up? And if I finish in the fall, then I kind of know, oh, there's a winter slate of festivals. Or if I finish in the spring, okay, there's a summer or fall slate of festivals. But that's 
more or less the extent of my calculus. And then it's just a, then it's just a question of who's interested. And, and once you know who's interested, maybe a calculus does happen of, do I, you know, they're offering a screening in competition, they're offering a screening not in competition, but it's, it's got more name recognition. So there is a kind of calculus. But sometimes you're just like, they're actually going to show it. <laughs> so I'm going to play with that festival because it hasn't gotten into other festivals. So it's um, it's not the same kind of calculus of many people I've talked to who are really hold on to their film until it gets that time of year rolls around. I've never done that because I'm always just want to get it out there and I want to see it in the world. But Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we were here almost sort of accidentally. I mean, if we were paying attention to sort of premiere requirements of festivals, which I think could be a whole other debate. Oh, but, yeah. um, but <laughs> Not we, one for today. <laughs> not one for today. Um, we had kind of like figured out um, a, a finishing timeline that would have put us more in line for festivals in the summer or uh, kind of early fall. Um, and we realized that that would put us out or we would be ineligible for Sundance. So we kind of sent it on a whim and we're very surprised when it was accepted. So we kind of had to re-strategize at that point, but. He means hurry, hurry up. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, um, yeah, I mean, and also like, I think this is the first film that I've been involved in that felt like it could find a home here, you know, like, like, like it's orientation to the world and uh, interest in environmental issues and people. And I mean, it just seemed like if ever there was a film, and like oh. to try to to try to to try to get it in front of the Sundance yeah. committee. Actually, I mean that's interesting because one way in which your films did feel a piece at Sundance, even though you know the New Frontier category had these three features that did feel kind of set apart, but then there I did notice that a lot of films here this year are contending with environmental issues, which you know for obvious reasons. Um, so in some way, your films did seem to fit that. And actually, um, well, maybe I want to start at the beginning. Um, you know, both your films kind of collage a lot of different ideas, images. Um, so what was the catalyzing, the seed idea or image for each of you that then spawned the whole inquiry of your film, uh, Mary Helen and Mike, so that Deborah doesn't accuse me of looking at her? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Uh, I think it was seeing... Um, uh, a picture of Sister Ophelia, this uh, Dominican nun, uh, in her kind of, in this sort of makeshift science lab in the convent, mm. and thinking about like, um, I mean, just being really struck by that image. Um, it felt out out of time and space, really, but also hyper specific. Um, you know, like a, a species that's endemic to only one lake. You mm. know, this this like very specific history uh, around Pazcuaro and being really intrigued by all the intersecting ideas there. Um, and then I think, like, we chose that, and then the rest of the film was um, contending with and following up and, like, kind of, like, re- trying to be respectful of all the things that we discovered there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we were interested in making a film that was about climate or ecology collapse, but kind of from, you know, from an angle or something like that. So the salamander as like an indicator species of perhaps like oncoming change, mm. that it was the first thing to disappear. That is as, as a kind of clue of mm. like the, the kind of worldwide or sort of climate change uh, around was really interesting to us. And then like Mary Helena said, we kind of followed a thread and that took us, you know, mm. you know, we're all throughout all the locations. Generated where the film goes. its own limbs. Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. 
Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was watching your film this time. Um, that it had very the structure of it felt very much to me exquisite corpse in the sense of, you know, I sensed you with the salamander story, and then I don't know if this is what happened, and then hearing the the story of the app, you know, the the family whose sons go to Washington to pick apples, and like an exquisite corpse, it's like that apple maybe led you to, at least that's how the edit sets me up, and I was really loving that because it was literally like limbs growing out of this initial body, and not something you had sort of pre-thought, like okay, it's going to have these three sections, and this is where they're going to happen. So yeah. it felt um, organic to me that kind of growth out of itself. Yeah. I mean, it was a process of discovery. I don't think we had apples in mind before we went to uh, Pottsgrove for the second time. And so it was the migration story that led us to the region. And that was also where we discovered Joseph uh, Iracheta, who's the uh, indigenous scientist that's interviewed right. for the so, NBDC. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, he has that great line. I, I want to get into that a little later. It's like altruism or data mining, question mark, which was you know, I mean, that uh, that was a whole thesis in and of itself. But Deborah, what about you? Um, what was the seed image, the first rock you thought of? I mean, the seed <laughs> image was actually a text. Um, so it, and it was the J.H. Rosny, um, actually two of his short stories, their short stories. So it's two brothers who write under one pseudonym, the Brooks brothers, the Belgian Brooks brothers. And then they were the death of the earth and the hippohuts and those stories had just been a kernel in the back of my head for a long time. And in fact, I had shot, I had started shooting the star people, as I call them, which are people holding these tetrahedron mirrors and kind of occluding their body with the reflection of the sunlight. Um, quite a few years ago, like five or six years ago, just like, I know I want to make some sort of sci-fi story about, it's sort of a last man story, I guess, or last woman's story. But to open it up and to have it um, not just sit in the land of sci-fi, um, but that was the that was the kernel. So started with a with a book, which I don't have a lot of films that have started with a story. Stories have come in, and texts have always come right. in, but I, I think this is the first one that that was really the originating seed. I I was wondering if. La Jete was an influence with the uh, light Interesting. people. Yeah. You know, um, not. But the first time I heard Valérie Massadien, who's yeah. the a filmmaker and who read who reads the voiceover in French and a little English, the first time she sent me her voiceover because she recorded it herself in her closet, um, I literally got La Jete chills. I'm that, like, same. <laughs> she, I knew she would have a great delivery. Yeah. And ever since I first heard her speak, and I, I just love her. I love her films. Mm. I love her demeanor. I just, I like her speaking voice. So it was a, um, a hunch. But then when she delivered the text, and I got it, you know, in first pressed play. I'm like, well, it's the update. You've got, you've just done the La Jete update, <laughs> yeah. maybe without trying to, but. Something about that sonorous, like, measure, it's slow, but sort of seductive. It's such a good delivery. It really is, and it feels like the voice of the universe. I don't know. I mean, you know, some a voice that... Someone told me, a French speaker, I'm not uh -huh. a French speaker, said, what's amazing about her voice is if you hear it as a French speaker, you can't place it temporarily. You can't read her idiom. It doesn't, you can't tell if it's contemporary or like 100 years old, which wasn't, I didn't know that, yeah. but to hear it from... A French speaker was rad. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was she directly reading from the text that you were 
sourcing the voiceover from? Yeah. So I, I edited down the text extremely, just a, a few sentences, and I mashed together the two stories. So she was just directly reading that. So every once in a while, you hear the paper turnover. And she read it in a few different, you know, a few different distances for the mic, one really, you know, quiet and one trying in a few different ways. But wow. yeah. she's a natural. I mean, she's an act- actress as well. Right, so. right. I think had some clue about that, but mm. well, uh, one thing I wanted to kind of uh, dig into was the question of point of view in both of your films. There is kind of both films make this effort to contrive a perspective that we naturally struggle to access as humans, or you know, as we uh, just the way we understand the world. And in your film, it's you know really thinking about history from a non-human uh, centric point of view think of history and memory and evolution and time really you know thinking of time from a non-anthropocentric point of view and there's a similar kind of effort um in your film Mary Helena and Mike where you're really thinking about what is what could be the result of non-human based ways of knowing the world like when you're talking about AI technologies that pick apples and this idea that it's a black box like um neural networks are a black box so when you can't actually read their ways of understanding the world like it's there's there's this unpredictability to it that your film is inviting us into and um i i wanted to ask about that you know um why i guess why that was of interest to you but also how you used the tools of cinema to get at that you know what were the specific choices that you felt lent itself with that kind of shift in perspective I mean I feel like I really love these fantastical ways of thinking about cinema and like intersubjective points of view or non-human points of view but I also feel like um like that's a great way to start thinking but it's so I mean it's an impossibility (laughs) and I think that what was we thought a lot about lenses Um, maybe instead of like direct, like, which I suppose is another way of thinking about, you know, focusing light and vision and all of that. But, you know, the, the, the salamander as one, the apple as one, AI as one. And, um, and, and like thinking through those things. And then I think Mike and I were sort of like, when we arrived at, when we, when we started to think about the privatization of everything or the datification of everything, it became a little bit of like a, a, like a dark turn in the way that we thought that there was almost this sort of inevitability in the way that, um, systems of extraction were just constantly like re-adapting and re-evolving to different situations and different like objects of extraction. Um, and so, um, I don't know. It, like we were talking a little bit about the film's form having this grafting structure, and I do think that that idea of uh, like a mutation or an echoing or the something new being made, but it's also just sort of a re- reiteration a lot of the times. I think it also was maybe part of the process of collaboration as well that we both had sort of particular sort of research interests and perspectives, and the the aspects of the film that we moved forward with were those that kind of like resonated between this between us so there was uh an aspect of a kind of like third point of view just in the mixing of our sort of of the 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 point at which those two things met um which i think i think helps this idea of just a a kind of not not a non-human but just like a not not a subjective point of view from either one of us Mm -hmm. solely yeah and i think and that i think that was a big that was a goal, a major goal to do something completely different from our separate practices and to have it be this, this 
new grafted thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and but like I mean, the, the idea of imaging and or that impossible image and conjuring it like was a big motivator. Like in the in talking to um, like the AI specialists about how. AI sees an apple and like, and like Mike and I were tripping out over this idea of an apple being the negative space between the stem and like, um, the calyx, the calyx. This is the technical term. Oh, uh, yeah. It's the bottom part of the apple oh, that kind of goes, goes in and has the kind of like, yeah, yeah petally. Oh. Uh -huh. yeah. So, I mean, just this thing that, you know, you know, you could get, you could lock me in a room all day long and be like, describe an apple, and I would have never gotten there. <laughs> and just being really excited about like mm. that kind of shift in perspective. Yeah, we were pressing really hard to try and get uh, one of the engineers <laughs> to talk about like how an AI sees an apple, or yeah. like, is it different? Is an AI what a, an AI thinks an apple to be? Is it different from what yeah. a human thinks it to be? And they were very resistant to answer that question outright. Huh. Sort of like, yeah, I mean, I feel like this ties in a lot to your film, but a lot of your work, like your project about holes, is it is oh. sinkholes? Yeah, the yeah. swallows. The swallows, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, thinking about like negative space as, po you know, a positive object, but... Um, as necessary. I mean, as filmmakers or as anybody who works with time, you know, the interval of nothing is essential. Mm. <laughs> and I love working with it. But I mean, to go back to your question about points of view... I pithily say, like, the film's from the point of view of rocks, but of course it's not. I mean, I made it, and, and it's, there's no rocks speaking for themselves. I think what got, what I was interested in with points of view was the gap between um, a fictional, speculative narrative voice and how much room that gives for thinking in, and that, especially if it's just in voiceover, which these voices are, what kind of bodies can magnetize that voice, which I think are just endless, infinite. Like it could be a thing that the voice ends up landing in. It could be a, a person that you see on screen and you're like, oh, that person embodies that disassociated voice, that voice that isn't associated with any particular person. Or maybe they're just omniscient, you know? They're there in the wings and they're there to kind of bring the cinematic world into being, but it's slippery. Whereas the, the let's just call it the factual voice or the actual voice of Marsha Bjornerud, her lecture voice, that's a voice of one particular human. And because we only hear it on the voiceover, it can still land in any body, including a landscape body or a non-human mm. body, but it's a lot trickier. And I think people are a lot more resistant to it and they kind of want to see whose voice that is because it does belong to one particular human, mm. not one non-exchangeable human who's speaking her own thoughts. It's not thoughts that I gave her to speak. Mm. We're just having a conversation. So that's what was um, really motivating me in terms of perspective mm. of like, it's so interesting how much room we give different types of voice delivery or knowing, I'm not being very clear, but um, no, I think, to me, this is fascinating, like how, how much room one type of voice has to sort of land in different um, vessels. <laughs> right. And or compared to another kind of voice. Right. But so I hope the perspective can shift from feeling like it's me. It's it's 
me, the viewer, it's my body to, oh no, it's actually that figure there that I'm seeing on screen or maybe that whole landscape or it's the planet. You know, how, how often can um, the body of the speaker change, change, hmm. you know, what things can be an, a, a, you know, a house for the body, a house for the voice. For the voice. Yeah. That's a tangent, but. There no, <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking about like the ro like rock POV in, in your film, but I feel like the la the shots that you interweave into the final credits are like a real like um, proof positive of what the film has done for me for thinking about rock and you know thinking about mm -hmm. different times because it's like my what I care about and what I am paying attention to that in that image with all that kinetic like life and dance happening on the oh, stone with the of the ground. Yeah. 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 It's like, but it's perfect because like you have in the course of the 59 minutes or whatever, like ha reoriented mm -hmm. me. So, I mean, I know you're, you're being like log liney with it, but it is like, <laughs> it's like, it, it works. It works. That's good. Cause yeah, that's true. If people watching breakdancers wouldn't normally be like, Oh yeah, I saw what I saw the ground. Yes. They the were doing that on the concrete. The concrete. I mean, you, you kind of um, feel the tangibility of, you know, of their movements. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess this is a broad question that applies to a lot of experimental or avant-garde or structuralist, all, all these kinds of films. You know, why do you feel interested in these kinds of points of view when there is so much emphasis on empathy and character and understanding humans in like, you know, like narrative cinema especially but documentaries too and at Sundance you know that's kind of a really overriding theme and then it's so refreshing to see films like yours which resist that but actually make you think about the world politically you know in in pretty urgent ways without having to anchor me to a person their story their feelings I mean for me, it changes from film to film. I think I have definitely made films that are very, I'm going to say conversational, meaning like it's between me and a, and a subject or a, a group of people. And it's really the what I shoot is in is in dialogue with what they provide. Whereas other times, um, if what I'm in conversation with is more of a a sort of knot of a philosophical question that I can't answer, then that's what I'm in dialogue with. It's it's not a res call and response like when I'm shooting a, more of a portrait type of film. And to me, both are interesting and they engender really different forms. I just kind of want the film always to tell me what it wants. I don't mm. want to try to place categories or sort of, you know limits or expectations on the content my hope is that it tells me what it should yeah yeah like it's not a vessel for you to get something out it's kind of more reciprocal I mean you're you're being guided yeah sort of by the, I mean it's literally know. I the films are tools for me to think through stuff I don't mm. get period I wouldn't mm. make them if I knew if I knew <laughs> I make them because I don't know. So, yeah. I mean, I think we also entered the film with a kind of idea that we understood the complexity of the themes, you know, and the political importance of the themes that we were trying to address, but also didn't want to like reduce them. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it, empathy is a really interesting word because I feel like the film can be critical or just like understanding the kind of like dangers of some of the aspects of the, the, the different uh, like locations and practices that we're talking about. But the, the people who are doing it are like really good people and doing good work. So we always wanted to kind of like 
approach it as sort of a paradox of mm. like, you know, preparing for a warming world where perhaps manual labor is going to be more difficult. But how does that sort of change, you know, the world that we have right now? You know what I mean? In terms of uh, making that labor force disappear. And it was uh, the other thing that came to mind is just the sort of like non-human side of the, the story too. a friend um, watched a cut of the film and said, you know, I have a lot of empathy for the human characters, the sisters and the fishermen. But like what really struck me in watching the film was the salamander and the mm. lake. And I think that was I don't know if that was like a conscious goal of ours, but we were certainly engaged in the idea of like thinking about the perspective of the non-human. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. We came into the project wary of um, character-driven stories and the expectations that they just sort of shuttle in with them of closure <laughs> and conflict and resolution or, you know, anything like that. And, I mean, just like the kind of default reduction that happens in that. And we wanted to talk about, like, an overlap of systems and have the film think mm. systemically and kind of realizing that, like, you can't talk about migration without talking about climate without talking about like ecological collapse without talking about colonialism or you know food sovereignty or data sovereignty and and um I mean that that subject is impossible to, to find and I think also like non like dealing with a discrete subject like would have felt conceptually wrong for a film that's thinking about um genes and synthetic biology mm. you know that we're actually moving across bodies and across borders and um that like you kind of have to think in this kind of blurry space yeah and like so we hope that like naming the complex genome of the axolotl like will make you think about the department of defense you know like mm. <laughs> oh i loved that <laughs> when that came up uh but also you know a line that i really liked in the film was and i don't actually know I can't recall where it's from, but uh, the narrator says uh, understanding like meaning is a man-made or anthropocentric concept and that information technologies are uh, almost like a, a mimic kind of a spiritual way of knowing through revelation, like knowledge through revelation and not understanding. I mean, it just set off, you know, these ideas in my mind and I started thinking about film form actually I think Deborah your film because of the text you draw upon there's sci-fi the texture of Valerie's voice as we talked about the stunning I mean really you know there's a line in your film I mean things that we don't see don't not exist I mean I'm, I might be messing that oh, up oh yeah, yeah 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 just because you don't see something oh no I'm getting it wrong too just because you haven't seen something doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you it, don't know it doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't. Oh my God, we're all getting it wrong. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> something like that. But there was this just this idea in both these films, which are so about science, but they find their way to spirituality. And it's almost like because both films are ultimately facing up unresolved, maybe unresolvable questions, you just end up in this space of revelation that I found really fascinating. And I was wondering if you both could dig into that a little 
talk about revelation. <laughs> do you understand? I mean, you can talk about this citation. Sure. I mean, yeah, just to make sure yeah, start we with, do. Is this the, the lock? No. Oh. Um, the, the, the line that you mentioned, um, the oh, understanding yeah. like meaning is an anthropocentric co- uh, concept. One, that information technologies were built to elide is quoted directly from a book by Megan O'Geeblin, God, Human, Animal, Machine. Okay. And so the perspective that you're talking about is something that we kind of collaged from a couple of different sources. Mm. Um, the O'Geeblin book and then a James Bridal book called The New Dark Age. And I think, I mean, the, the idea of the sort of like point at which, you know, science met faith or they overlap or become indistinct was something that we were really interested from the beginning and was implicit in the, in the story of the, the nuns and the salamanders. Mm. And I think we, as we kind of move through information technologies and patent law, we were really interested in a way that we could come back to that. Mm. And those texts through research were a way that we could sort of return to those ideas. <laughs> and uh, Deborah, where is that line? Did you write that? Yeah, line? yeah. I was like, what was it? It's, yeah. um, I know a lot. Of, I know about a lot of things I've never seen, and so do you. And of course, you're like, of mm. course, yeah. I mean, half the things I know are things I've physiologically come to know, or I come to know through how I feel it, or whatever the um, <laughs> sensory input is, but not necessarily one of logic or one of Mm. sort of more Western um, empirical modes of knowing. Mm. But I guess, I mean, it's been a common trope of some films of mine for a while now, maybe from even before the Illinois parables got really interested Mm. in, um, you know, what we turn to, to kind of try to grasp what we don't know. And sometimes it's technology and sometimes it's faith, but very often one or the other or both. And I don't feel like they're as far apart as sometimes they're often cast because of when we tend to turn to them, um, to, to, you know, to deal with things that are bigger than what our brains can get around. Um, yeah. I don't know what else I'm going to say about it besides that, but. How did you, I mean, what was it like filming the rocks or imaging the rocks. I mean, they're, uh, like I said, it, it just feels transcendent to look at them on the screen. You really feel like it is some kind of spiritual thing you're seeing. So I'm curious, you know, it's the process of capturing that. Um, I mean, for me, it was totally pleasurable. Mm. I, I'm not, you know, it's not like I've been, I'm a 50-year rock fanatic. If it's kind of come late to rocks, I have to say. And uh, I've always loved going to natural history museums and and seeing the varieties of rock. I think when I really started tripping on them, though, was when I learned about that Robert Hazen's theory that minerals evolve, which was news to me. And I, I just it was a total paradigm shift for me to realize that, okay, it's not only biogenic things that evolve, but actually minerals do, too. And we're they're dependent on one another. The ways that minerals evolve are based on how biogenic things are evolving and vice versa and and changes in you know um biological you know conditions shift minerals and 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 the minerals and rocks and ice and oxygen that's out there shift what happens for um biogenic bodies so that got me super jazzed mm. about rocks. And then I was already jazzed. I have a lot of rocks at the house and <laughs> I'm into carrying them around. And, you know, I've liked certain rocks, but I've never been a big crystals person or I don't know. So it was more like learning how they grow mm. and the different habits they form and thinking about crystalline habit as a form of resonance. Um, that also got me really excited that um, 
as someone who thinks a lot about vibration and th- um, and that also as a resonant form, if you mm. think about a growth habit as like that pattern of growth is a, is a resonant habit and this sounds so esoteric and out there, but that got me really into rocks, which is probably not the direction that maybe a lot of people mm. tend to come into rocks. So, um, so filming them was just also what happens, I think, to anyone who's sort of into them. You're like, oh, look at that one. Oh, my God, look at that one. Oh, that one has such a character. And what what technology were you using to image them? Or, you know, um, how did you process those images? All different. So everything from, like, screwing my Bolex onto a microscope um, that had polarized light passing through it to filming off of a electromagnetic, uh, no, and a, what are those called? A scanning electromagnetoscope? I'm thinking of the wrong name. It's where they can zoom in on the super, super particle level. Mm. I can't remember the name of the device. And then I'm just, I'm shooting up the scientist's screen. Other times, you know, just the rock behind glass or with the glass lifted up in a cabinet. Um, And sometimes from far away, like rocks on a cliff face or something. So at all distances, but it seemed important to show their interiors as much as I could. Um, And the both... I wanted it to stay interscalar. So you saw things on extremely small scale and, you know, at a distance and were sometimes lost about what you didn't have a way to orient your size. Yeah. There were a few images that were like really mutable in that way. Like, um, like I think it's sort of an orange circular, I think I'm looking through a microscope and I'm like, but it's also the sun. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I was like, it just felt like a, it felt like an image and language cut that really just like held that yeah. interscalar logic. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Think, right. Things could be giant or they could be tiny. Yeah. Yeah, they're cool, you know, maybe. Yeah, they are cool. <laughs> they rock. Like rock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, think about size and distance and also, I mean, time is so important to both films. I think there's there, there's just this phrase that stuck uh, with me uh, from last thing. I think polytemporal worldview. That's a Marsha Bjornrud uh, phrase. That's something she says in, in the voiceover. And yeah. Um, and I was thinking about that in relation to a common sequence as well, the looping structure of the film, how you're encouraging us to think about the past and the present and the future kind of at the same time. And this idea that the future is kind of here. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about like the editing decisions, you know, that went into these films. How do you, I mean, film is a linear medium and so when you were trying to convey this kind of experience of time, what are some of your guiding principles in the edit? We've talked a lot about diagramming this film, but I because um, and there were many shapes. But I think that this like idea, what? Um, there there was there was a swirly shape. <laughs> there was a swirly pin- meaning like kind of yes. going spiral, spiral. Yes, spiral. Spir- yeah, uh-huh. though yes, spiral. I meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like swirly too. Right? <laughs> um, and there was a pendulum. There was a maypole. Um, Ooh, okay. But I think I mean elliptical was always things folding back on themselves, mm. like the echo, like um, like trying to really think about like a lack a, a lack of fixity that we have these people migrating and dispersing and resettling and plants and animals doing the same thing, important export and um, like the, these confusing lines of um, life flourishing of invasive species and I mean just. Um, like those kind of overlaps were really important. And I, I feel like it's true to say that early on, we knew that we wanted to bookend the film with the fishermen. I feel like that's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And, um, and I think that like another structural callback that became really important was returning to the apple as, as metaphor of knowledge and like <laughs> being, having the film, um, really kind of widen out even while I was calling back its initial subjects. Um, I mean, what comes to mind is not exactly an answer to the question, but it's just a kind of like, I wonder if you two feel this, a frustration sometimes when I'm editing where like, of course, film is a linear meeting, uh, medium that unfolds like temporally, but there's certain moments where I, you know, in editing, I'm like, I wish just the viewer could just see it all at once, you know, at a certain point, I wish they knew everything at once. And yeah. I think it was a real challenge to find the structure of the film where it starts as an exquisite corpse, but it doesn't, but at a certain point it starts to kind of like... Diff diffuse and you start mm. to think about the apple when we're looking at you know mm. uh, axolotl dna or something like that like what is the structure that we can sort of like trick people into not seeing it all at once but thinking it all at once right, right. and like the idea of the um automated apple picker being at a field like fairly nearby where all, like there's all these human workers mm -hmm. and that those two things are happening simultaneously and um that like there's limb regeneration conversations and mechanical, you know, robotic hands mm. and that these things are like seemingly at odds, but also concurrent in the same way that we've already talked about kind of belief systems having that um, nonlinear progress with what we were talking about with mm. Revelation and the black box. Mm. Uh, um, you brought up Maypole. It's so funny because I feel like I I just went right to an older film, Or the Land, where I totally had a maypole structure. It's like the story of somebody falling out of a plane. But I think that you bring it up is interesting in in the context, Mike, of what you bring up of like, I wish sometimes people could just digest the entire film all at once. But I think by the end of the film, once we've all watched cinema, you're able to retroactively rewrite the things that you saw before and you thought meant one thing because now you have this other content in your mind. And so that happened watching yours. It mm. happens, I think watch, for people watching my film or any film where you're able to kind of recontextualize on the, I mean, I guess it depends on the level you're like really <laughs> invested in a film, but yes, it's linear and yes, it's like needle in the groove and the records going, but you also, because of the rhythms of what you've edited, the rhythms make what we saw before indelible mm. or come back up kind of like a refrain, a rhyming refrain. And I think back about the sun I saw previously, or I think back about mm. the last time I saw the dogs or, yeah. You know, so I think we all do that. I mean, we're able to hold, thank goodness, mm. or film wouldn't exist, rhythm <laughs> in us. Yeah. And it helps us remember what we had seen in some prior yeah. section. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, memory is nonlinear, and movies eventually become memories, and for the viewer. So, um, I also wanted to kind of dig into the question of the commons, which is central to a common sequence, but it's really central to last things too. In a sense, you know, you're talking when you're talking about. Uh, the earth the planet the universal rocks i mean and that's why like the focus on objects is so interesting because they are things that are non-discrete in a sense i mean we we kind of experience you know we all experience them and i was also thinking about the commons uh, like some of the questions that a common sequence raises uh, like i was saying earlier data mining versus altruism you know this idea like how do you you want to live in a shared world, 
But you also have to protect yourself from capitalism where, you know, everything is immediately mm-hmm. privatized and you can be exploited and profited from. And maybe this is a kind of a leap, but I was thinking about how that relates to filmmaking, uh, maybe, you know, like mm-hmm. the John Locke uh, epigraph, when does an apple you eat become mm-hmm. yours? So like, when does an image you shoot become yours? Mm-hmm. You know, when like when you film a rock and or you're filming like a, a fishermen is that something you know you think about and just yeah (laughs) how do you think about it I mean I I loved that opening quote it's so beautiful about is it when you first bite it or when it's in your digestive system I mean it's such a welcome kind of open and generous way to open up the set of questions Mm -hmm. that come after in the film about oh because ownership it's such a well a it's such an American you know um what conundrum I guess or oxymoronic relationship we have with things and and uh, but outside or just maybe capitalist let's just say Mm. not just American but sort of like the capitalist way of existing with things where they can be owned as opposed to a point of view or you can't own something so as someone who shoots images and in the case of this film have used tons of images which are which I didn't shoot you know, you, or you, images that I shot yeah. 10 or 15 years ago, which and were you, never intended for this film. And you you end with, like, there was an intro title at the end saying, we've tried our best to identify copyrights. Mm-hmm. If we missed anything, contact us. Actually, that's what made me think about John Locke, oh. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. funny. I mean, that kind of... <laughs> I think... I'm, you know, maybe I have because I come to a, a lot of cinema with a, more of a collagist um, sensibility mm. as an editor. And I feel like if there's an image or a sound that helps the sentence make sense, I'll tend to use it. And mm. I, I want fair use like the I trust being in artists hands who are going to use other things. And mm. it's great if we can know what those sources were. But I also um want to encourage people to sample just like in music I'm like down with hearing a sample that I recognize from a song from 30 years ago and a song I hear today Mm. so Mm -hmm. when do we own an image can we own an image Mm. maybe not I don't know that I can own an image even something I've shot as Mm. soon as I put the film out there in the world I don't feel like it's mine Mm. I mean, we thought a lot about like imaging as a step in owning or understanding or in sort of the implications of science in that process and, you know, got into a lot of messy spaces with where universities were developing ideas and private companies Mm -hmm. were a part of those and like where things just get really wild um, with plant patenting or um, um, technology patents around AI um, and we were trying to think about how filming, filmmaking kind of has parallels to that mm. and um, got excited about opportunities to make our footage like open source to our participants. Oh, okay. So it didn't work for everybody involved mm. because they didn't have like the the interest or the, the, the means. Um, but with um, the Native Bio Data Consortium, like all the images generated there um, are theirs. Mm. And um, same with... Um, like from the lecture they're giving, the, the sort of PowerPoint thing? No, maybe? our footage. No, right? oh, oh, the footage oh. that we shot okay. um, in oh, Sioux River. It. And same for Washington State University. All the lab footage is theirs. Mm. And um, we're giving everything, all the interview footage to the um, United Farm Workers Foundation. Oh, and wow. what's the name of the 
the copyright gap that's in your other phone. What? The cop- oh, the analog hole. The analog hole. Because, I mean, I feel like this is related, right? Yeah. Like sort of to this ownership question. Maybe you could say a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, <laughs> sure. I'm getting, I'm derailing us. But no, no, that's perfect. Well, yeah, I made a short film called Exhibition mm-hmm. and there's a, um, there's this moment of um, the, the gap in copyright law that the second that something is, is a analog signal to be projected, to be heard and received by a human body. Like that's its inherent vulnerability to be pirated and captured. Um, and I just found that to be like a wonderfully erotic and interesting <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, and yeah, but yeah, it's all over the place, right? It's in all mm. of these films. Um, so, I mean, that those are some of the ways that we were thinking about it. And like, I would love to see, you know, like, our our same footage in like a in like a, a an ad for a robotics lab in Washington <laughs> State, you know, and then just like and like fully embracing like the mutability of all these things mm. and that like meaning can be ascribed to them in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah, and in a lot of cases, like the images I was using have been used in other ways, you know, towards other ends, towards other research ends, mm. or. Um, yeah, but it, yeah, and like we got into like complicated conversations around consent, not just in um, like in the subject matter. Like you know, of course, there's the conversation about like releases and um, under- telling your projects kind of general thesis to those who are involved in it. Mm-hmm. But also like through Joseph's work, um, consent of sharing genetic information and being a part of a tribe and like all the implications around that, and it it, it goes so deep into mm. what is. What is yours beyond mm-hmm. like story, which is kind of usually where the conversation ends and right. those kind of questions of propriety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that phrase is so tell your story. What's your story? And it's it's interesting to think about how you're how you're talking about your subjects um, is really kind of making me think about it differently. Like, what do they own in this process of collaboration? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do want to ask a, a little about collaboration, maybe as final question. Um, you, I think you guys said something really interesting earlier about like finding this third point of view. Um, you know, and I, I want to hear a little more about how collaboration influences your work or what you find rewarding or challenging about it because you do a lot of things on your films yourselves right I'm shooting you know sound (laughs) you know a lot of like uh on top of direction and then what um you know for instance Deborah like having for instance Valerie even though I I I under as to my understanding she only read the parts uh or was there anything more right yeah we just I selected the sections and yeah. kind of edited it down and then she just read them. I, I would say that my relationship with Marsha was maybe more collaborative mm. in the sense that um, it literally was a conversation. And uh, so it was an interview that was recorded and we were mostly, I was asking her questions, mm. but it went a little both ways and or um, recordings of her, of her lectures to her classes. I mean, mm. Valerie's, it was more collaboration on, on the level of, tone and kind of mm. like what do you where is this emotionally going or setting a a, a field a stage of some sort but mm. but we weren't collaborators uh at the point of conceptualizing an idea right. or ha- you know on the level that you guys have been and really really having a dialogue from the beginning about how are we going to structure mm. this and what you know what are the ideas we want to focus on it was mm. more just me being can you do this part? Right. Yeah. But who who would you say are your key collaborators when you make a film? Or do you have people or roles that you think of as key collaborators? 
Um, it's different for different films. Mm. Definitely sometimes when I've co-shot things with mm. other people, I really consider them my collaborators. I've never co-edited something. I've always edited my own. Um, there's been a few times when I've asked composers to look at the footage and then they come up with music and I consider that more of a collaboration for sure. Mm. Or a film like Hacked Circuit where I actually have a crew and we're in dialogue with one another. But for the most part, the way... <laughs> It's more scripted, my relationship with people. I kind of have something I need them to do, but mm. it but it's often my more non-film works that are more truly collaborative, mm. where I'm working with somebody before something's even conceptualized and trying to come up with what's the shape going to be? What ideas do we really care about? Mm. I don't do that as much in film, with the exception of the more like straight-up portrait films, mm. where I really feel like if I'm working with Ray, who has, you know, 75 birds of prey in his backyard it's really a collaboration with him right or the tightrope walkers it's with them or the drag racers it's with them and that feels to me like a collaboration mm. yeah i mean i think um for us or with the idea of collaboration i mean it's something that's always come late i mean i've shown cuts of my films to mm. both of the people in this room you know multiple times so they've seen you know my films before anyone will have seen them you know because i want their feedback as a way to kind of change it and put it through that process i guess i've never thought of our collaboration as a kind of like outgrowth or connected to work that I do in narrative, but mm. I am really interested in sort of like improvisation with actors. I really like the idea that like you can be surprised by something in a film or that there are aspects that kind of come from outside of your brain. Mm. Um, and this was like the kind of very concrete, obvious version of that. But there are other like subtle, less overt ways that we're constantly collaborating with the material, like with the people that we're talking to, with the research that we're doing. Mm. It's always a kind of like collaboration, even though we don't necessarily think of it that way there's always a kind of dynamic of trying to pull in something that is not your own mm. and let it speak through the context of the film. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. I guess that's why things went smoothly, <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, I just really wanted to begin something with like a, like a, a dear friend from the beginning and step outside of like my own habits or proclivities or, you know, tendencies and like, um, I was joking the other night that I make a lot of indoor movies and I was like, we're going to make the most outdoor movie ever. <laughs> I'm going to leave my house and we're going to go places. And, and, it was, and it was fantastic. That's such a funny way to think of it. I mean, the other thing I think about with collaboration is just if you're someone like me and you guys as well with some of your projects that tend to shoot um, in a more observational style where mm. what's in front of me hasn't been scripted per mm -hmm. se. I mean, it's scripted by the fact that I'm turning towards it instead of away from it, you know, and, it, and right. it's what I'm framing it. But that I honestly feel like is a collaboration, like the accidents that happen in front of the frame and I'm responding to them. And, mm. and it, I mean, maybe that's somewhat hubris to say, but, I, but I feel like, I think it's the opposite of, <laughs> yeah, hubris. I mean, that, that <laughs> is to me, a this sounds corny, but it, it is a dance and it is, mm a call and response and I'm trying to sort of a turn on my camera when something kind of pokes me to, to turn on and pay attention to it. And then, and then to decide like how long am I shooting this? How am I going to frame it? So that does feel like collaboration to me, like mm. letting the world um, suggest to me, you know, how to respond to it. And not that, you know, 
the world's kind of talked back to me per se, but I'm ready I mean, for it too. I think rocks talk back to me. After, <laughs> after seeing your film, I'm convinced. I'm like, what are they, they saying? Are. <laughs> what song are they singing? We should all be <laughs> geologically listening. Yeah. Yeah. When I think of that, um, there's this image in the film of like the kind of thing you see a lot in sort of um, um, ancient sort of peoples who sort of carve out or spray uh, ink on top of their hand and leave the handprint. Mm. And I've always felt it before as a kind of like a tagging, you know, like, oh, I was here and I'm leaving mm. my mark. But after making this film and after this this few years of conversation, to me it it now is a sign that that person was listening to the rock, ah. like kind of hmm. touching it and feeling it. I don't know. I just, something flipped in me of like, maybe it's a sign of having listened instead of a sign of, Kilroy was here. Right. So. Huh. That's interesting. I think that's a very nice note that we can end on. A very beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, all three of you, for doing this with me. The tail, I think, the tail end of the first week uh, of Sundance. And it was just so nice to watch your films here, to have this chance to pick your brains about it. Uh, so thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.